electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. Here is what's ahead of us. The clock is ticking in Washington to get another stimulus package done. We'll have the very latest and a closer look at what happens to the economy if that bonus $600 unemployment benefit gets reduced or goes away. Plus, Mark Cuban says the market's COVID rebound reminds him of the dot-com bubble, and he's warning people not to get too greedy. So what should investors do next? We'll debate. And from the coffee wars to how the NFL plans to keep players safe and whether anything can stop Amazon, that will all be ahead in rapid fire today. But we begin with the markets, and for that, we turn to Bob Bassani. Bob? Hello, Kelly. Uh, So remember last week we were talking about how value was outperforming growth all last week? Well, that lasted exactly one week. Today, we're back to the old pattern, and it's basically growth, I mean technology, over virtually everything else. There's the Dow Jones Industrials flattish uh, on the day, but Apple's helping. Uh, S&P 500 still trying to get over that 32-32 hump. Not easy to do, but if you look at the sectors, again, tech outperforming, and those value plays, the energies, the industrials, the bank stocks that all did really well last week, They're a little weaker today. Mega cap is back. Amazon had an awful week, down 8% last week. Well, guess what? It's regained a good part of that loss today. Microsoft, Alphabet, of course, Apple and Facebook all on the upside. So the trend here is we're back to where we were. The work from home stuff tends to do very well. This has happened since that June 8th high that we hit. So the Pelotons and the, and the uh, Zoom videos of the world doing very well. The travel and entertainment stocks, what we call the reopening stocks, are not doing as well. And again, this is a, a pattern that other than last week, we saw fairly consistently for a while. Earnings are starting. We're about uh, 10% through earnings season. We got 20% of the stocks reporting in the S&P 500 this week. That's not a typo. Down 44%. This is the worst quarter since third quarter of 2008. We'll see if we can get better numbers. But so far, that 44%, that's not rising at all. Guys, back to you. Yeah, it's going to be a rough uh, one navigating all of that, Bob. Thank you for now, Bob Bassani. Let's get down to Washington, where the next round of stimulus talks are officially underway. Kayla Tausche is here live with the very latest at this hour. How's it going, Kayla? Hey, Kelly, earlier today, the president met with his chief of staff and the Treasury secretary, as well as congressional Republican leaders to hash out their roughly one trillion dollar response to the aid package that House Democrats passed, totaling about three trillion dollars in May. As part of this new effort, President Trump is again proposing a payroll tax cut. Despite lackluster support on Capitol Hill, aides say that the president believes this is more politically defensible than helicopter money. And as a stimulus, it would help both companies and workers so long as those workers are employed. It's very important. I think it's a very important thing. It's very good. Uh, it's been proven to be successful. It's uh, a big saving for the people. Uh, it's a tremendous saving. And I think it's an incentive for companies to hire their workers back and to keep their workers. As far as the response in the room, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell did not appear sold. But for those Americans who are part of the 11 percent or so who are unemployed, the administration wants to tailor the aid in this fifth 
package, reducing the level of expanded unemployment insurance, narrowing the number of families receiving direct checks and targeting hardest hit industries like restaurants for business grants and also protecting stores that open from lawsuits if the virus spreads there. Now, the Treasury secretary said that this package in particular will focus on jobs, vaccines and kids. Discussions with Democrats will happen next now that Republicans are on the same page. Kelly. All right. We'll see how quickly they move. Kayla, thank you very much. We'll talk more about one particular piece of this. That $600 a week unemployment benefit. It's currently set to expire at the end of next week. A new report from Evercore ISI estimates that if that benefit goes away, it could be a 2% drag on GDP this year and nearly 2 million fewer jobs we could have as a result. At the same time, some could see their unemployment benefits plummet by more than 70 percent. For more, let's bring in Ernie Tedeschi. He's policy economist and head of fiscal analysis at Evercore ISI. He also served as a former senior advisor and economist for the Treasury Department under the Obama administration. It's, well, it's good to have you, Ernie, and welcome. And uh, first of all, you're talking about a two percentage point drag on GDP? That's right. So wow. you can think of that. You can think of that as it sounds like a small percentage, but you can think of that as a typical pre-COVID year of uh, GDP that we would lose as a result of not extending this. Yeah, I don't think it sounds small at all. You know um, that we can ill afford to lose that. So, you know, there are various proposals underway about maybe uh, trimming the benefit by you know to going from six hundred dollars, maybe something a little bit less. So the only reason it's at six hundred dollars in the first place is because the jobless benefit systems didn't have the technology to just replace the wages that people were making, which was, which was the goal here. So what levels to you would kind of achieve that goal and how long should it be extended uh, before it does more harm than good for the economy and for these workers? Well, I think the smart thing to do would be for Congress to find some way to keep generosity constant. Uh, you know, and, you know, maybe finding a way to address concerns about job finding while still maintaining that, you know, if emergency unemployment insurance, if the $600 a week goes away entirely, that's $18 billion a week in federal support that would disappear. Uh, and as you showed earlier, you know, if you're a worker receiving unemployment insurance benefits, then overnight, you're pay would essentially go down by 50 or 75 percent. So that would be a major drag on the economy. Although I believe there are some various state programs where you can extend that benefits receive, receive some level. Of course, that'll start to vary a lot depending on where you live. Uh, did you look into optimal responses here? I mean, so, so what would your analysis point to as what Congress should do next? So we, so we looked at two things. We looked at the macro benefit from this extra spending. We also dug you know, into the jobs data with a microscope to see if there was any evidence that the extra benefit was having an effect on job finding, which is the primary objection that you hear to this emergency response. W what we found on the job finding front was really interesting. There's no correlation between the generosity of someone's benefit and whether or not they found a job in May or June doesn't mean that it hasn't happened in isolated circumstances, but it does mean that there were lots of people who had very generous unemployment insurance, maybe even getting paid more than they got paid in their jobs before, and yet still took a job in May or June. So I think that, you know, the risk of cutting this macro benefit too early that is clearly helping consumption, the economy overall, right now outweighs the risk to possibly job finding from 
um, having UI benefits that are too generous. What about some of the other ways to get cash to households, basically? The payroll tax cut obviously applies more if you're working. Um, but obviously on the employer side, a payroll tax cut, I mean, that does equate to savings for the employer. They could use that to hire people. We also have the option of direct checks. There's been a lot of overlap between ch- those who are receiving checks and some who have been on unemployment benefits. So is there another way that a government program could help people who are displaced by COVID? So I think that unemployment insurance is a particularly good, well-targeted program because it goes to people who need the money. Um, And prior economic evidence has found that they have a high likelihood of spending that money. So that means that for economists like me, we see a lot of, you know, possible stimulative effects from UI spending. Uh, Checks and payroll tax cuts can have an effect as well. You know, the problem with payroll tax cuts are twofold. Number one, employer side payroll taxes are already deferred for two years, Hmm. uh, up to two years under the CARES Act. Uh, So you could cut businesses' ultimate tax liability if you wanted to, but that may not help liquidity in the very short term. Um, The second thing is that you obviously have to be employed to see a benefit from a payroll tax cut, either from the employee or the employer side. So if you're one of the 30 million people currently receiving UI benefits, that by definition doesn't help you. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. So is there a, a dollar level here that you think we should kind of focus in on as a takeaway? So, you know, I I think that the smart thing to do for Congress with regard to the unemployment insurance benefits would be to maintain the generosity in the short term. Uh, If they're concerned about the risks of, uh, you know, generosity being maintained too long, uh, they can uh, they could tie that six hundred dollars a week to state level unemployment rates so that, you know, the six hundred dollars would only go away if your state saw an extraordinary recovery. Um, The other thing that they could do is they could keep the $600 and give an extra benefit to workers, to people who find jobs. You know, that's another way of aligning the prices between unemployment insurance benefits and work that would address some concerns about it. I think either one of those would be big. You know, maintaining $600 a week for the rest of the year would cost about $400 billion. Um, But, you know, the economic outlook is is getting more uncertain now, Hmm. not less. So I think going bigger is the the smarter play at this point. Like you said, the idea is to avoid a self-inflicted recession, which would probably cost uh, a lot as well. Ernie, it's great to have you. Thanks again. Thank you. Ernie Tedeschi from Evercore ISI. Well, Dallas Mavericks owner and shark tanker Mark Cuban is warning investors about the big rebound from the March lows. This morning on Squawk, he compared the current situation to the dot-com bubble of the 90s. In some respects, it's different because of the Fed and the liquidity they've introduced and the inflation for financial assets that comes with that. But on a bigger picture, it's so similar. The only way you get to keep that money is by cashing out. Don't get greedy. Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. Joining me now for more, Ernesto Ramos is head of equities at BMO Global Asset Management. And Brian Weinstein is head of global fixed income and Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Welcome to both of you. Ernesto, I'll start with you uh, to the, on the stock market side to just what Mark Cuban was saying. Are you similarly warning your clients? Well, it's certainly uh, befuddling the way the market has has acted. It's not befuddling in the sense that it's driven by liquidity, but the fundamentals, both at the macro and the micro level, are weak. You know, GDP going down 25% for the second quarter relative to a year ago, and and earnings going down 44%, as you pointed out. Yet the market is only off 4% from the high in February. Now, the outlook from now to the next couple of years, compared to the outlook back in February to the next couple of years, is quite different. So why is the market basically at the same 
point. It's, it's, it's got to be liquidity driven and sentiment driven and not really fundamentals driven. So that's why our approach is emphasizing safer, low risk stocks with uh, without paying too much for them, because there's certainly some pockets of the market that are way overvalued at this point, including the tech sector, for example. So we'll come back to some of your top picks. Um, you know, Brian, I know you're more in the fixed income space, but liquidity should raise all boats. Do you see the same phenomenon happening and kind of pushing valuations to an extreme? Yeah, fixed income markets are a little different. I mean, we watch the equity markets with awe, and all these things are, are amazing with liquidity. But I think if you look at fixed income, the volatility has just fallen to, to almost zero, right? Interest rates really aren't moving, um, and people need income. So if you're going to sell your equities, right, if you're going to take profits, we're seeing inflows in fixed income. You can still get 5 or 6% in high yield. You can still get 3 or 4% in, in high-grade uh, bonds and active management. It's just a great case for active pickers. But in, in fixed income, what we're seeing is lack of volatility, and that is a good thing, and it causes investors to move out the curve to find yield, to, to have a place for their money if they don't want it in cash or they don't want it in equities. Brian, why do you think parts of the high-yield market still offer 5 to 6%, some parts of high-grade 3 to 4%? I mean, it, those kinds of yields are getting harder and harder to find, are they not? And will continue to do so, I would imagine. I mean, look, especially the, you've got the Fed in there buying. Yeah, the, the market has been very efficient, right? If you look longer out the curve, yields are higher because they're riskier. If you look at high yield, obviously the higher quality companies um, and net have done have done better, and the, and the triple Cs do well when the equity markets really really rally hard. Um, but you're right; it, it is a very bifurcated market. The Fed has chosen winners, right? That's investment grade and, and fallen angels, and, and a little bit of high yield index. But uh, but that stuff has done the best, really. I think the stuff that that investors need is uh, are the securities that are just outside that band. There's still money good, right? The Fed didn't. didn't and go and buy everything. So there, there are still some good yields out there, but you're totally right. There are securities out there that yield 5, 6, 8, 10%, um, and those are a lot riskier. So you have to build a, a balanced portfolio. And Ernesto, let me turn to you. As you said, you think the whole tech sector is basically overvalued. You'd much prefer something like the Russell uh, 1000 value trading at 18 times. What about people who say this isn't about growth versus value? This is about, you know, the world is changing and it, that change just accelerated because of the pandemic. The way that people work is different. The way that people live and order online and shop is different. And these valuations match that. Oh, no question about it. I mean, Amazon, Facebook, uh, Google, all these companies are going to be around and they're going to be very dominant and they're going to do very well. Whether you want to be 149 times earnings for Amazon today that's that's a different story, um, and especially in this environment, they're going to do well. They're they're COVID like uh, they're, they're COVID proof st- stocks because they actually benefit from the work at home and all of that. Um, now um, the, the the question is the outlook is so murky for the rest of the the the, the market that you really don't want to pay that much for that safety. You'd rather buy companies that are safe in their own way, like uh, Sprouts Farmer Market, Costco. Kroger's, uh, um, AutoZone, companies that, that have a focus away from the cyclical stocks, yet they're not in the tech sector, which is so expensive. And you're, you're paying anywhere from 15 times for, for Sprouts Farming Markets to 25 times for, for Eli Lilly, for example. So you're, you're not overpaying, but yet you have safety and low risk because it's important in this environment with, with the outlook so uncertain, especially given the fact that the pandemic the pandemia is accelerating and, and we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if it's going to go down again, how quickly it will. There's so much uncertainty. Jamie Dimon said it. Um, uh, it it's hard to predict the outcome. So it's best, it's best to stay safe with your picks and not overpay for them. And that's what we're trying to do in our 
in our BMO global low volatility. Yep, and lots of examples of that, as, as you just gave us. Thank you both, Ernesto Ramos and Brian Weinstein. Some thoughts on how to get selective in this market. Coming up, we're reading the transport tea leaves, and they don't bode well for Europe. With southern countries faring worse than northern ones in COVID and their economies diverging as a result, we'll look at whether other nations could follow Britain in leaving the EU. Plus, mall owners swooping to the rescue of bankrupt retailers. Is it a risky bet or just what the industry needs right now? And as we head to break, take a look at the sectors today. Consumer discretionary and technology are in the lead again. Utilities and industrials, the biggest laggards now. Familiar theme. We're back in two. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. The Dow transports are down nearly 11 percent this year, thanks in particular to Delta, American and United Airlines. But there's a stark difference between those airlines and air freight and everything else. Landbound constituents like FedEx, C.H. Robinson and J.B. Hunt, they've been trucking with some pretty steady gains this year. And my next guest says that air freight data indicate that Asia and North America are past the worst of the covid impact. But the eurozone is in for a long and painful recovery. Joining me is Donald Broughton. He's managing partner of Broughton Capital. Donald, it's good to have you back. And I get mixed kind of views on who's doing better. I hear that Europe's doing better than the U.S. And then I hear that the U.S. is doing better than Europe. What, what's the story? Well, it's a, it's a bit of a giggle curse, if you will, and that there's some areas in which you just you see results that are just so strong, you almost want to be elated. Literally, volumes out of uh, John Doe are up uh, over 90 percent from the worst uh, earlier this, just this year, just four months ago. And other parts uh, just get are bad and continue to get worse uh, volumes uh, in and out of the eurozone, particularly out of uh, in and out of the eurozone, things that are very very high tech things are shipping in uh, back and forth with Asia in particular. So, let's start actually with what you just said about uh, are, are, was that a Chinese port? Was that Guangzhou or that you said? Were oh, yeah, we... well, I, I didn't pronounce that. Word. Yeah, it... FedEx is main hub. Got you. Guangzhou. Yes, got you. Just making sure I'm following because it's encouraging what you're describing. So, in, what does that tell you about where the recovery? in the globe is doing relatively well and almost back to normal. Well, what it what it's indicative of is the way where each and every economy is responding to COVID and the the prevention of it or or the dealing with it. And more and more what you're seeing uh, both in North America and Asia is our technological responses. Uh, we're going to figure out how to automate. We're going to be, figure out how to do it with technology and not do it old school economy. And in order to do that, you have to ship uh, lots of parts and pieces, high tech stuff. Um, and areas in which they're not doing that, they're leaving, uh, uh, staying with the old school economy. Uh, uh, you're, you're not seeing that and you're not seeing a response, a return uh, to 
in the economy, rebound in the yeah. economy as a result. So let's zero in on what you're seeing in Europe in particular. And again, the risk here, as you've described, is that they have kind of a multi-speed recovery. You had the South get hit worse than the North with coronavirus. Of course, those economies responding differently as a result. And it highlights a fundamental tension between these economies that comprise the zone. And those are economies, if you think about when you go to visit, the charm of going to uh, pl- certain places in Italy or Spain or, or, or you know, the coast of uh, France, Greece, or the, or the little shops where it's all the bread's baked uh, by the guy that you see mm-hmm. behind the counter. Uh, it's, you know, they, they didn't experience going to big box, much less going from big box to, to Amazon. Uh, they're still doing mom and pop shops everywhere. Uh, that's part of the culture. It's the charm, but it also means they're way, way behind us in the ability to introduce technology and make their businesses hype, not only more efficient, but hyper efficient. And this is an opportunity, like you said, to maybe make that quantum leap forward and, and go oh. tech heavy and, and tech forward and all of that. Um, does it suggest they don't have the resources or that a lot more is going to have to be done at, at kind of the European macro level to get the whole recovery on track? And I, I can't imagine it bodes well for the U.S. I mean, we're still big trading partners. Well, yeah, I, I think we'll be. I think we'll be just fine. I, I, and I think part of it is, is resources, but I think really much more of it is is culture. You know, it's 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 the old uh, Alvin Toffler future shock. We're willing to a, adopt a much big, bigger change in technology than they are, and as a result. As we put that in place, technology is is productivity. Productivity is prosperity, and uh, part of it's you know the technology is available. It's whether or not you are uh, as as a you know as a society willing to adopt it and accept it and make it part of your everyday life. And if you are, you benefit. And if you're not might be a charming place to visit, but it doesn't mean you're going to keep up with the rest of the world's economy. So I'll ask you finally what you would say to investors. I mean, across your coverage universe, does this point to names, you you know, more Europe-exposed names you might want to stay away from? Yeah. Well, you know, certainly uh, UPS has a far larger European exposure than FedEx does. FedEx has a far larger Asian exposure than does UPS. So that that meters itself out pretty quickly and pretty easily for us uh, on a straightforward basis. But that said, beyond that, it's or do you have companies like uh, FedEx, XPO, uh, who are willing to adopt, you know, massive amounts of uh, incremental new technology? You know, XPO literally wants their freight brokers to not ever type for it all to be done via voice command, which is productivity. Uh, And so when you adopt uh, large incremental, uh, you know, it's a technology age. If you take it on and they're willing to to, uh, uh, put it in place, guess what? You get to be more efficient uh, than your competitors. And so you provide better service at lower cost and that usually wins. Yeah, so you're betting not just on the locations uh, that are investing in tech, but on the companies themselves. Donald, great to have you as always. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Donald Rotten. Coming up, a closer look at the coffee wars. The stay-at-home stocks like Carraway have been outperforming, but one analyst says investors aren't fully appreciating how flexible Starbucks' business model is. We'll debate that. And as California blocks most schools from in-person instructions, will parents opt out? We have the very latest from California. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple.
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's a quick check on markets about half past the hour. Look at the Nasdaq just storming out of the gate today. It's up 1.7%. Amazon is up nearly 6%. Remember, that's after declining about 8% last week. So it's already climbing back. We're going to have more on that in rapid fire. Uh, the Dow is still down fractionally about 19 points, about 100 off the lows there. The S&P 500 is up about half a percent. Splitting the difference, it's up 15 points. Here are some of the individual movers. Big deal in the energy patch. Chevron agreeing to buy out Noble Energy. It's a $5 billion stock swap deal. It's the largest oil patch takeover since the COVID pandemic hit. Shares of Chevron are only down about 2% on the news. Noble rallying just about 5%. And how about CalMain? Those shares are lower after beating earnings estimates but falling short on revenue. They're the nation's largest egg producer and they benefited from a rebound in prices, which we all experienced. Egg prices have been up. Consumers have been stockpiling during the shutdown. Uh, still, CalMain shares down just under 2%. The company said it will not pay a fourth quarter dividend given its current variable dividend policy. Those shares are under some pressure today. And finally, let's look at Moderna, which is falling after J.P. Morgan downgraded the stock to neutral from overweight. Valuation concerns primarily. They said they're still bullish on the company longer term given their progress in developing a vaccine. Moderna, though, is down nearly 14%, so a pretty sizable chunk today. Let's get over to Frank Holland now for our CNBC news update. Frank? Hey there, Kelly. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. The United Kingdom has suspended its extradition treaty with Hong Kong. This amid widespread condemnation of Beijing's new national security law in the former British colony. Under the law, it suggested acts of succession and collusion are punishable by life sentences. The United States, Canada and Australia have all suspended similar treaties, accusing China of clamping down on Hong Kong's autonomy. Head to CNBC.com for more on this story. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves extending a face covering mandate on Monday for an additional two weeks in 13 counties, also adding 10 more counties to that list. Doctors have recently been calling on the governor to issue a statewide face covering mandate. And a rare comet known as Neowise was seen in the skies over Switzerland overnight Sunday into Monday. Its tail of gas and dust debris clearly visible from the ground near Lausanne. NASA said once that comet disappears from view this Thursday, it will not be seen again for 6,800 years. And that's your CNBC News update for this hour. Kelly.
Back over to you. Frank, I've never seen a comet because usually I just don't want to get up in the middle of the night or whatever you have to do to glimpse it. Yeah, you definitely have to take a few extra steps. This one, we got some video. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, that's true. The video, I mean, something, someday. Uh, Frank, thank you. Thank you. Frank Holland. Meanwhile, the title of the street's biggest Amazon bowl now belongs to two firms. We have that plus the lack of commuters hitting coffee companies. And safety now has a new meaning in the NFL. It's all coming up in today's edition of Rapid Fire right after the short break. Stay with us. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to take on the headlines are Eric Chemi, Kate Rogers, and Michael Santoli. Welcome, everybody. And we'll dive right into Amazon getting a pair of price target hikes to the highest on Wall Street today. Goldman and Jeffries both boosting their targets to $3,800 a share. I'll just never get used to saying that. It's more than 20% upside from here. Goldman says the rapid e-commerce growth during the COVID crisis can continue to drive the stock higher. Jeffries kind of similarly says Amazon is positioned for strong sales growth going forward. But Mike, $3,800, what is the multiple now for Amazon? Well, the multiple on that target price, if you listen to Goldman Sachs, is somewhere around 30 times earnings for 2021. Uh, I look at a free cash flow uh, multiple, and it's close to 50. It's it's wow. pretty much as high as it's been in the last five years. And I think another relevant number is at that $3,800 target, it's roughly a $1.9 trillion market capitalization. So obviously, uh, analysts finding ways to justify higher prices. And one interesting thing is the stock price has outraced the consensus price target on Wall Street. So <laughs> often that happens uh, when people have to kind of find a reason uh, to keep things uh, looking like there's further upside. Uh, I would just ask one thing is, you know, clearly don't overthink it. Great tailwinds here for the business. But in recent years, the increasing share of the cloud business and the overall valuation was the bull case. True. And now all of a sudden we're talking about ah, that low margin very cumbersome e-commerce business is the reason to buy the stock. So now they're kind of firing yeah. on all cylinders. And in fact, uh, well, one firing of the, on all cylinders, but do you pay as much for that retail business because it was considered to be less attractive? That's that's part, partially a question. Right. And then, you know, maybe down the road, we get into breakup concerns. Eric, the thing about Amazon that's interesting to me is you would say, well, when everybody agrees that this is going to be, isn't that already information that's priced in? But then I would have said that three or four years ago. I mean, when we were, you know, the stock has just continued to, to perform. Yeah. I mean, going from 3000 to $3,800, that's a pretty sizable move up. And it makes you wonder, well, what were they thinking a couple weeks ago that all of a sudden now, well, we got to move this thing up almost 30%. So you do wonder at some point, is this going to start to catch up? Do they really hit these numbers yeah. anytime soon? I mean, look at that stock chart. It's up 70%. Right. That is Amazon. And, and granted, one of the numbers in here that is pretty shocking um, said, this is according to MasterCard or Factius data. They say consumer spending at Amazon, Kate, has been 60% up year on year, which to me is just, I mean, that's the kind of number a new company with like five people, you know, should have, not Amazon. It's amazing. I agree, Kelly. And we are getting Amazon packages at my apartment. As I said last week, it feels like almost every other day at this point. I'm curious to see how much consumer preferences continue to change post-pandemic. You know, we're leaning so much on Amazon and e-commerce right now because, quite frankly, for many people, it feels like the safe thing to do. You're not necessarily going out in stores and, you know, seeing other people in person. Uh, once you get into that habit of just relying on this company more and more, I think this is likely here to stay. I know personally, I mean, I'm willing to pay a little bit more, even wait a little bit 
bit longer uh, to get something in just because of the convenience factor. I know. Maybe we'll have pent-up demand for, you know, wandering down Main Street again or something, but mm. it's, there's a Main Street left. All right, let's talk about some coffee wars. Carowig and Nestle are beating Starbucks and Dunkin' this year. Starbucks, though, is getting a nice boost on the street today. Uh, Kate, the analysts there are saying they're more suburbs-focused, giving them a $92 price target, saying there's 24% upside. I guess they're more suburbs-focused than Dunkin'. Yeah, listen, I mean, these are, are two similar but different models here. And, and with regard to the analyst note today, they talk about the flexibility that Starbucks has. They have this massive uh, loyalty and rewards member program of nearly 19 million people. They're also kind of changing a lot of their formats. They have more to-go uh, format and pick-up locations that they're going to be building in, in larger cities. And they're also looking more... Uh, toward drive-through and, and to-go in the suburbs. Duncan also has a to-go focus model, but let's be real here. The pandemic has really impacted both of these business models greatly just because so many people are staying home. There was a ton of pantry loading going on, particularly in the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, Starbucks same-store sales fell 43% in May. Duncan said quarter to date uh, through May, same-store sales had fallen about 23%. So they're both really struggling. And I think we're going to feel the brunt of the pain in this current quarter. We'll hear from both companies uh, next week. I know I'm definitely looking forward to it. But, you know, people, as you said, I think there will be some pent up demand to go out and, and get your coffee yeah. in stores. I, I see it even here, my local Starbucks. The lines are getting a bit longer as we move, you know, forward in the future. I know it's interesting, Mike. Can you have this tension where Amazon can continue to do well because everything's changing, but yet people, I, I totally agree. I mean, as soon as you don't have to make your coffee at home, people are yeah. probably going to be pretty quick to go back and get it uh, to go. Right. And, and my observation uh, firsthand and, uh, and otherwise is that uh, Starbucks and Dunkin' are really in the business of selling people very large iced sugary drinks while they're on the way to doing something else, right? It's not as if, oh, am I going to brew my coffee at home or go to Starbucks necessarily? It's, it's a mobility play, uh, and it's people, you know, just kind of doing that stop along, uh, along their route. So that's why I don't necessarily think it's a, it's a zero-sum game with Amazon because you're stuffed. You're still going to maybe uh, be yeah. in that habit of getting it through Prime. Although I am, I'm going to tackle making iced tea today, you know, and people who have made it are laughing because they're like, there's not much to tackle. <laughs> but <laughs> Put it out in the sun. Yeah. It works. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's talk about what's going on with the sports right now because NFL owners are reportedly meeting at 2 p.m. Eastern time to finalize their plan to start the season. This is as training camp kicks off today for the Kansas City Chiefs and the Houston Texans. Their rookie players are reporting today. First-year players to the other 30 teams report tomorrow and the veterans next week, Eric. But all weekend everyone was talking about, you know, these tweets from the quarterbacks who are upset about, I guess, the lack of safety protocols or bring us up to speed what's going on here there's a lot of players over the last couple of days they've been tweeting a coordinated tweet effort you may say about saying we want to play we have all these confusion around what are really the safety protocols there's a lot of details that are missing look the league a couple of days ago put out a whole bunch of rules right you can't do this you can't do that you can't go outside you can't go to restaurants we got to space things out we can't you know shake hands and share water bottles in locker rooms and it goes on and on and on and on right but the players are like well wait a minute we still have all these other questions what if you have an at-risk family member do i still have to come how are these rules going to play out do we need to do these preseason games so it's a complete mess kelly so here's my question by the time we got to football we've had a few other sports to kind of figure out the kinks is it that because football by nature is just always going to be a harder one like anthony fauci was saying or is it that 
they don't feel comfortable by what they've seen with other leagues, or are other leagues just handling it better than the NFL? So in the football case, they had a lot of time to figure it out. They were waiting as long as possible to see how this virus would develop. They are not using a bubble, right? This is not the NBA going to Orlando. Right. These are teams all over the country that will be flying to all these games, and this is the most contact-oriented sport. So people are, you know, clobbering each other. They're all over each other. So the players are saying, well, wait a minute. If we're still going to play football, then why are we worried about all this other stuff in the locker room and the weight room? Those are the guys that really want to play. Then on the flip side, there's guys that say, hey, this is too dangerous. I've got a pregnant wife at home, for example. I'm not sure I want to be here. Yeah, no, it's tricky. And, and real quickly, because you mentioned the bubble, what is the latest out of the NBA? I mean, because in both cases, we've seen a lot of people drop out. We've seen a lot of people who, you know, don't feel comfortable playing. But again, it seems like the seasons are moving forward. So far, it seems like it. They haven't played any official real games yet. That's still a couple of weeks away. But right now, the NBA bubble is focused on their snitch hotline. They got an anonymous tip line. You can call in and complain about other people who are breaking the rules. And now players are saying, well, should we be snitching on each other? Is that allowed? Is that not allowed in our unwritten code of ethics over here? Interesting. And, Mike, we've got baseball with the no crowd noise, which is its own experience. It's completely bizarre. Um, And, you know, it almost feels if the games are sort of the least – uh, impactful uh, part of this whole conversation, especially for football, where you're playing once a week. Uh, I think it's the training camp piece. It's the being together beforehand and the travel to and from. That's the big issue. And those are, you know, bigger elements, arguably, of baseball, where you're kind of on the road constantly. Yeah, I know Kate's just made about what's going on with sports. Kate, they're just... What are you going to do? Kelly, even I watched the Mets, the Mets Yankees game. Wow. I saw it. <laughs> I was interested well, to thoughts? see what this looked like. And anybody who knows me <laughs> knows that this was, you know, not my thing. Uh, it was just surreal, right? The cardboard cutouts, as Mike mentioned, the cued sound. I mean, I know some in my house were very happy to have sports back on. Yeah. I didn't necessarily miss it, but I'm just so curious to see if the NFL can do this safely. And Eric mentioned all of those safety concerns. I mean, what does this actually look like? That's the big question. Yeah, we'll see if we get more detail in just a couple of hours after that meeting. And finally, the recovery for the airlines might be a bit more turbulent than expected as well. U.S. air travel fell last week for the first time since April as COVID cases spike across the country. Let's bring in Phil Bow. We're talking some airlines. We've got to have Phil here. Um, not a huge drop, sir, about 4%, but a drop nonetheless. Right. Right. You shouldn't have a 4% drop at a time when travel is expected to be increasing. Remember, this is the busy time of the year traditionally for airlines. People are taking summer trips, summer vacations, and they were expecting travel to increase. That clearly has not happened when you see the levels plateauing where they are right now. By the way, as you take a look at the airlines, couple of things to keep in mind. You get a couple of earnings reports this week that people are going to be focused on. One is United, which happens tomorrow, and United is saying their load factors for plane, Kelly, they're down under 50% now because they've added more planes, but not as many people are flying. And then you've got Southwest reporting on Thursday, and today Southwest CEO Gary Kelly is out saying that about a little over one out of every four employees at Southwest are either taking early retirement or opting to take a voluntary leave of absence. So this is what we're seeing from the airlines now. It's all about deciding who's going to stay, who's going to go, how many take retirement, how many take a leave of absence, and will there be furloughs? You know, Phil, the the scarier kind of, it's all related, but piece of this is just how many layoffs we're going to see coming. So in Southwest's case, it sounds like they got pretty good take-up, but I think for some of the other airlines, they didn't even hit the numbers that they were hoping for, and that's partly why these layoffs loom. We don't know yet, Kelly. I know people are saying, well, United and American are going to lay off people. No, no, no. They sent out warn notices to 25 to 36,000 saying potentially they could be laid off come October 1st. But they still have their, their early retirement and their leave offers that are out there for employees. So once we see the final number of how many people take those, then you'll know how many people may be laid off at each airline. Again, it's still in process. Too early to know how many will be 
ultimately laid off at certain airlines. Yeah, one final observation. It does seem like we're seeing a lot of differentiation now between what Americans doing versus Delta. Versus, I mean, what, who, yep. who's getting it right or do, do we just not know yet? There's no way of knowing who's getting it right. It's a matter of what you think. I know people who fly on Southwest who say, love it, love that the middle seat is empty. I know people who have flown on United and have said, no big deal. I, it doesn't matter to me. So it's ultimately whether or not all air travel can come back. And I think at this point, it's just not there. We're just not seeing it, and we're certainly not seeing the increase in August that was expected. Yeah. All right, Phil, thank you. And anybody else here gotten on a plane yet, Mike? No. Not been tempted. Yeah, you're not tempted by the low fares. What would you say about the airline stocks, Mike, American in particular, where people just look at the debt loads and say, how can you ever overcome that? Yeah, it's a bet on exactly uh, how quickly we can get to some semblance of normalcy. At first, it seemed like maybe you had this lost six months. People got very excited about the rate of change and increase in traffic on a week-over-week basis a couple of months ago. As Phil said, now you've gotten that stall uh, in that line. And that's a problem because the capital structures of these companies are not built to kind of go into next year uh, in this cash burn mode. So uh, it really is. Uh, it's very difficult. All the companies, I think, have tried to maintain as much of uh, normalcy as possible in staffing. It's hard to see how long that lasts. Absolutely. So we hear from United tomorrow from Southwest on Thursday, among many others. We'll leave it there, guys. Thank you all. Really appreciate it for this edition of Rapid Fire today. Mike Santoli, Kate Rogers, and Eric Chemi. Coming up, pandemic pods are the newest education fad in the Bay Area as some schools are barred from reopening. We'll have those details next. As we head to break, take a look at the healthcare and biotech ETFs, all hitting intraday all-time highs, led by the likes of Insight, Regeneron, BioXL, and Sorrento today. We're back in two. Welcome back. There's a new trend in education gaining steam as the Bay Area schools are mostly blocked from in-person instruction. They're called pandemic pods. Aditi Roy joins us now to explain. Aditi? Hi, Kelly. A lot of parents are scrambling to figure out alternatives to virtual education, especially after Governor Gavin Newsom's announcement Friday that most schools in the state will not be allowed to open for in-person learning unless they meet strict criteria. Pandemic pods are one way parents are finding an in-person solution. They're clusters of about three to six kids led by a private tutor to provide that in-person instruction. The teachers are often parents themselves who are homeschooling their kids or ones who are seeking in-person learning or teachers who have lost their jobs. One local company tells me a full-time certified teacher costs about $50 an hour per child plus $5 an hour for each additional child. That's in the Bay Area. And that brings up a lot of social justice questions, like whether that will lead to an exodus of higher-income students leaving public schools. The owner of Bay Area-based Modulo, which helps parents set up pandemic pods, tells me there are ways to set up these pods more affordably. For instance, like having parents swap days where they're watching each other's kids, but still, a lot of people are concerned that this will only further widen the achievement gap between lower and higher income students. Kelly? So how much demand uh, are you seeing already for these kinds of setups? Yeah, especially over this weekend after the governor's announcement, there's been just a flurry of demand. Just over the weekend, there's one Facebook site uh, dedicated to this topic that 
garnered more than thousands and thousands of followers. I think they're up to about 10,000 so far. Uh, even on my own parents' uh, uh, parents' site, uh, WhatsApp site, people are really talking about it as a possible solution. And what about safety? Because, I mean, we're still talking about, mm -hmm. you know, people from different families who are going to be interacting, uh, even if it's on a much smaller scale. Sure. And that's a really interesting point. A lot of people are worry that this may also lead to unsafe conditions. I mean, on one hand, you have stable groups, which is inherently uh, one thing that is safer. But uh, on the other hand, though, uh, you do have more an intimate setting. So things like wearing masks or socially distancing, those have a tendency to relax a little bit more um, with those smaller groups. So it's really up to the teachers and the parents to do the policing. Yeah, exactly. But it does seem like it would be really bad uh, for people who can't afford this option. Aditi, thanks. We'll continue to follow it. Aditi Roy out west. Still ahead, some of America's biggest mall owners are making what could be risky bets to keep certain retailers in business. We have all of those details next. Welcome back. Dow's up 25 points as it continues uh, to join the other averages now in positive territory, eking out about a tenth of a percent gain. But this is a fresh session high for the blue chips. The S&P is now up six tenths of a percent today. And the real headline is the Nasdaq. It's up almost two percent. It's up 197 points to 10,700, powered by Amazon in particular, which is up nearly six percent today, all but erasing its eight percent drop last week. The Nasdaq uh, more than erasing its decline last week with just today's gain. We'll continue to watch it. Uh, no surprise, tech and software stocks are also on the move. They're part of this. Josh Lipton has more for us. Josh? Yeah, so Kelly, just watching those software names, the IGV, the ETF that tracks those names, in the green today, it's actually on pace here for its fourth positive day in five. Leaders include names like Everbridge, Dropbox, Zoom, Zoom, by the way, which is up about 280% now year to date, and Zscaler. All those, by the way, uh, were down at least 4% last week, but bouncing back in today's trade. And another software name to watch uh, would be Microsoft. Remember, they're going to be reporting earnings after the close on Wednesday. Kelly, back to you. All right, Josh, thank you. Turning to retail, dozens of retailers have filed for bankruptcy during the COVID pandemic. Some of them, like J. Crew, Brooks Brothers, and Neiman Marcus, are the lifeblood of America's shopping malls. And with the fate of these brands teetering on a razor's edge, some mall operators that are sitting on cash are pulling these storied retailers out of bankruptcy. But there's a catch. Let's bring in CNBC.com retail reporter Lauren Thomas, who has more details on these risky bets for us. Lauren, how are they playing out? Yeah, Kelly, thank you, first off, for having me today. I think it's a really important story to be following just as this landscape clearly evolves uh, during the pandemic. So it's not necessarily private equity you know, money getting involved here to rescue these retailers. It's some of the biggest mall owners in the country, uh, namely Simon Property Group uh, and Brookfield. So, so far, what we've seen is Simon has already, with Authentic Brands Group, which is an apparel licensing firm, uh, supplied an $80 million loan to help carry Brooks Brothers through bankruptcy. Uh, Simon and Authentic Brands are also the stocking horse bidder uh, for Lucky Brands, which has declared bankruptcy during this pandemic. And a source tells me that Simon, with Authentic Brands and Brookfield, uh, is also looking at rescuing JCPenney from bankruptcy. Um, but the key thing really to, to know here and to pay attention to is there's not really a, a good case study to follow uh, to determine, you know, if this is if this is ultimately going to pay off. Uh, Simon did buy Aeropostale out of bankruptcy in 2016 uh, with authentic brands in Brookfield. 
Um, it, it Simon, the CEO of Simon, uh, David Simon, has said that the company did make a lot of money on that deal. Um, but I, I just think this really is going to be something to watch to see if it ultimately pays off for them. But certainly a, a lot of risk involved when I talk to analysts and investors. No, and it's interesting you bring up the Aeropostale example where that did seem like a successful turnaround as the company said they, quote, made a ton of money on it. Yeah. You know, so right. either this is that on a larger scale and, and investors would be thrilled that they were able to buy low, sell high, or it's an acceleration of the demise of chains that were going bankrupt anyway. And in that case, this would, these would be terrible bets. Sure. Well, I think the key thing, again, to remember here is in a lot of these cases, these retailers, they're huge tenants at, you know, at a Simon, uh, within Simon's portfolio, within Brookfield's portfolio. Um, and again, probably not every mall owner could be making these types of bets. You know, when you look at Simon, they've got one of the biggest and best balance sheets in this space. Um, they issued an investor update at the end of June and had about $8.5 billion of liquidity, and that included $3.5 billion of cash on hand. You look at, um, you know, Aeropostale, for example, split among those three companies. That was about a $240 million deal. So it, it's not, you know, when you're Simon, it's not a ton of money. Um, but still, you know, I think the goal is to, to make these businesses profitable yeah. um, and, you know, control, obviously, the, the stores that they do still have within their malls. Lauren, it's interesting because this is exposing the strong balance sheet of Simon and some others, which is not something you would expect after they've, their malls have been shut down by a pandemic. Um is there more that they could do, you know, to help these stores? We've heard from the likes of Tillman Fertitta, they're furious at landlords, and this is not including, I, I assume, this one, but in general for making them pay rent. I mean, should and could these mall owners do kind of widespread rent forbearance with that balance sheet liquidity, maybe help keep these uh, chains from going into bankruptcy? Sure, certainly. And I think, yeah, you do hear a lot of these discussions remain ongoing. Um, and there are a lot of negotiations I know happening behind the scenes in terms of, you know, retailers paying less rent. Um, but, you know, when you're Simon, you know, any of these companies, these mall owners, Brookfield, you have your own bills to pay. You have mortgages to pay as well. You know, we saw Triple Five Group, the, the owner of the Mall of America, was, um, you know, skipped a, a mortgage payment, was delinquent on that. And so, you know, these these landlords certainly have their own uh, liabilities to keep up with as well. So I don't think it's as simple as, you know, um, certainly I, I think they can try to strike deals with retailers, yeah. but they need their own inflow of cash as well. So. You mentioned Triple Five, Lorna. Is that American Dream in New Jersey? I mean, is that thing going to open? What the yeah. I know it's it's a mystery. I mean, I I visited it late last year before this uh, before the pandemic when they had just opened the ski slope, and yeah. it's it's certainly a, a sight to be seen. I think the goal is, you know, this project has always been designed with more of an entertainment aspect, um, much yep, less less exactly. than fifty percent was going to be retail. So it's a yeah, we'll wait and see. I mean, I, I think they're still gunning ahead with with opening. <laughs> yeah, we uh, wish them luck. They'll need it. Lauren Thomas, thank you very much. It's a great piece. You can read more on CNBC.com. That does it for the exchange today. I'll see you on the other side. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.